Section four of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume ten, March eighteen ninety nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The original territory of the United States by the Honorable David J. Hill, LLD, Assistant Secretary of State. The Influence of the National Domain. A cool and temperate Englishman, a far-sighted man in many things, wrote of the prospects of the Confederation soon after the peace. As to the grandeur of America and its being a rising empire into one head, whether republican or monarchical, it is one of the idlest and most visionary notions that ever was conceived, even by writers of romance. The Americans can never be united into one compact empire under any species of government whatever. A disunited people till the end of time, suspicious and distrustful of each other, they will be divided and subdivided into little commonwealths or principalities according to natural boundaries, by great bays of the sea and by vast rivers, lakes, and ridges of mountains. The events of the time seemed to justify this dismal prophecy, and the fear of its fulfillment agitated the best minds among the American patriots. The vast Northwest Territory, having been ceded to the United States by Great Britain, the question was, how was it to be held? Congress instructed General Washington to garrison the frontier posts, when surrendered, with the Continental troops. But after long and elaborate debates, the danger of confiding so much power to the federal government was made the excuse for disbanding the troops and leaving the frontiers to the protection of a few state militia. To the ambitious and jealous leaders in the states, anxious to rise to power in their narrow sovereignties, the utility of the Union seemed already past, and the destiny of America appeared to be wrapped up in the fate of thirteen rival republics, each too feeble to protect itself against foreign aggression, and all too suspicious to trust one another. The impotent bond of the Confederation became the laughing-stock of Europe. To many it seemed that a return to the protection of England was the only way of salvation for the paper money had become worthless, the fires of local insurrection burst forth from the ashes of discontent, interstate commerce was destroyed by petty frontier exactions, and the great experiment of independence seemed doomed to end in anarchy. We cannot here review the disquiet and anxiety of that troubled time, and can only briefly indicate the unexpected cure. The possession of a national domain, composed of territory ceded by the states to the Confederation, proved to be the anchor of the Union. Over this area Congress had assumed a certain degree of power, and it was the only sphere in which the sovereignty of the Confederation could exert itself. In the vast unpopulated stretches of the great Northwest, Congress, by the Ordinance of 1784, and the later Ordinance of 1787, exercised the right of eminent domain, ruled by its laws, and sold the land to obtain an income. 
The future states were bound to make their laws in harmony with the great principles of freedom, education, and suffrage laid down by Congress, and under no circumstances could they ever be separated from the Union. I doubt, says Daniel Webster, whether one single law of any lawgiver, ancient or modern, has produced effects of more distinct, marked, and lasting character than the Ordinance of 1787. Thus grew up silently, almost unobserved, yet, as Madison remarked, without the least call of constitutional authority, a national sovereignty which justified recognition at last by the formation of the Constitution. The Articles of Confederation had contemplated no such exercise of power, and the Ordinance was never submitted for ratification by the states. But the necessity of governing that vast territory had forced upon Congress a course as wise as it was illegal, until, as by a sudden turn in a mountain path, a splendid landscape bursts into view, the great and impressive fact that a nation had been created commanded attention. And seeing its sublime significance, confessing its rightful claims, the whole people felt their kinship and unity, and could express their conviction in the potent phrase, We the people of the United States. The Treaty of 1783 stipulated that the navigation of the Mississippi from its source to the ocean could be forever free and open to the citizens of the United States. Spain, however, who was not a party to this agreement, asserted an exclusive control over the river and denied the right of free navigation. This situation gave rise to one of the most thrilling controversies in the history of our country, now almost forgotten, but fraught with momentous consequences to the future of the American people. Franklin had foreseen the issue when he said to Jay, Poor as we are, yet, as I know we shall be rich, I would rather buy at a great price their right on the Mississippi than sell a drop of its waters. A neighbor might as well ask me to sell my street door. Soon after his retirement from the army, Washington made a tour into the western country, which he had known so well in his early days and whose wealth and value he justly appreciated. His purpose was to ascertain by what means it could be most effectually bound to the Union. The population of that rich and fertile region, a bold and adventurous class, separated by the remoteness of their position from connection with the eastern states, with little respect for the feeble rule of Congress, in which they had no representation, already showed signs of estrangement and independence so rich a soil such luxuriant vegetation had never belonged hitherto to any branch of the english-speaking race plains capable without cultivation of supporting millions of cattle fields golden with heavy harvests in response to the minimum expenditure of toil rivers affording great natural highways for the movement of their agricultural productions needed only an adequate market to render the great northwest the richest portion of the globe. The Atlantic states knew little of this vast region or its untold resources. They looked upon it chiefly as a means for paying the federal debts by the sale of public lands, and did not realize its political significance until 
their indifference and the inefficiency of the government had almost lost it to the union washington's whose large practical intelligence was so quick to discern great issues saw the impending danger returning from his western journey he recommended the appointment of a commission to make a survey ascertaining the means of natural water communication between lake erie and the tidewaters of virginia his project was to open all the possible avenues between the western territory and the atlantic thinking thus to identify the interests of the two sections to offer to the west participation in the advantages of the sea and to enrich the east by making it the emporium of the western productions but the shrewd frontiersman who had taken up the western lands saw another avenue to the sea and another way to market it was the mississippi and the tributaries flowing into it which seemed nature's great highway ready for their use only one barrier opposed them the obstinate refusal of spain who held the mouth of the great river and its western bank to permit its free navigation an interposition so autocratic so unjust so injurious roused the resentment of the strong men of the west and they resolved not to submit to this limitation of their rights the east fearing that the west would be lost if not held to its eastern connections opposed the opening of the mississippi preferring a commercial treaty with spain to free navigation congress met the problem with the feebleness that characterized its action after the revolution diplomacy was bartering away the rights of the young west when suddenly a trader whose shipment had been seized by the spanish authorities returned to tell the story of his wrong just at the moment was news arrived that congress intended to surrender the present use of the mississippi the whole population of the western settlements rose in wrath and indignation to protest against the folly by which they were being sacrificed looking out over their magnificent domain whose soil they were redeeming from the idleness of its natural state they felt that their abundance was turned to property if the mighty rivers which swept past their fields waving with harvests abundant to sustain the populations of europe were closed to them and they themselves shut up in their fertile valleys unable to exchange their wealth of cereals for the merchandise they could not create but there at the outlet of their noble river stood the obstinate spaniard sword in hand refusing them egress to the open sea and excluding them from the commerce of the world they must despoil their luxuriant valleys to pour their tribute at his feet and share with an alien and an enemy the largest return which america labor had yet reaped under the industry of its own free hands no they would not they had fought the savage and the wild beast they had come here to accept their heritage from the hand of nature and to find justice without relying on the power of kings they must go to the sea if congress opposed it was to be defied as the crown of england had been in the revolution if the spaniard opposed they would drive him off the continent and rid the land of an encumbrance they set their faces like flint for the empire of the west
twenty thousand men, trained in the field and the forest, turned their backs to the Alleghenies and their faces toward the great river, resolved to march to its mouth and drive the Spaniards into the sea. Congress could not deny their plea, and yet was not strong enough to espouse their cause. The need of a closer union in place of the rope of sand which bound the states together became evident. The great Northwest must be saved. A new vision burst upon the American people. A great and independent fund of revenue, said Madison, is passing into the hands of a single body of men who can raise troops to an indefinite number and appropriate money to their support for an indefinite period of time. Yet no blame has been whispered, no alarm has been sounded. Since, then, there already existed in the Union a form of sovereign power, why not give it substance? Why not provide the nation with an adequate constitutional basis? Under these circumstances was convoked the Constitutional Convention of 1787. The lands between the Alleghenies and the Mississippi were seen to be the key to the continent. They were the old vantage ground of France. Emigration was setting toward them, and in a few years they would constitute a mighty empire. They belonged to the people, not to the states, and the common possession bound the whole population together in a corporate interest. The discernment of this momentous fact created a new patriotism and flooded the intelligence of the people with a new light. Henceforth there were to be two kinds of government to correspond to the two kinds of interest that existed, that of the states, preserving their memories or traditions and their organizations, and giving perpetuity to their laws and liberties, and that of the nation, binding them all together in indissoluble union, preserving the common heritage of their people, giving them fraternity at home and prestige abroad, sweeping away the local barriers to trade and intercourse, gathering the whole people under the folds of one glorious flag, and sheltering the sister states under the spacious dome of a common nationality whose protection should extend over all alike. No wonder that Constitution has been called the finest specimen of constructive statesmanship that the world has ever seen. It has a character of universality about it, like the great laws of nature. It was compacted of historic liberties won in a thousand battles and rendered sacred by colonial memories and revolutionary struggles, yet was made for indefinite growth and future expansion in view of vast stretches of unoccupied wilderness threaded by mighty rivers destined to bear upon their bosoms the commerce of untold millions when these trackless wilds should be peopled by the makers of the great west the history of the united states is the story of its continued benedictions ampler vision has broadened the interpretation of its meaning and enlarged experience has widened the application of its principles. And today, as hitherto, the Constitution is flexible enough to admit of adaptation to all the changing conditions of our national development, yet strong enough to hold in one harmonious system forty-five great states spanning the continent 
and including within their limits every diversity of nature and every variety of man. Designed for a population of three millions, it has become the fundamental law of more than seventy. Ratified by a little fringe of people scattered along the Atlantic seaboard, it is accepted by a great continental nation. Written in a period of legalized slavery, it has laid the foundations of universal liberty. Expressing the final goal towards which political evolution is tending, local government for local affairs and a general government for general affairs, it presents a model for the final organization of the entire human race when some far distant dawn shall usher in the Parliament of Man, the Federation of the World. End of section four.